Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. Let me do a quick recap before we read the passage this morning. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you're not a Christian or if you uh, haven't been in church for a while, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So there's the Old Testament, which is the collection of Hebrew scriptures, and there's the New Testament that was written uh, after the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Um, it's one of four biographies of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different biographies, all basically doing the same thing, describing the life of Jesus, each from a slightly different perspective. Matthew, originally, his original job was, was tax collector. He was a tax collector. He's a tax collector. So not a super popular guy. Um, it's, I mean, even, even less so than in our day, right? Like, if you're a tax collector today, any tax collectors? I don't want to, like, you probably wouldn't even admit it necessarily, right? Um, but even more so in Jesus's day, to be a tax collector was to be a, um, a traitor, really, because it was working for the, um, it was working for the occupying government, the Romans. It was uh, basically, basically to have sold out your countrymen in order to make some money. So Matthew originally was a tax collector. He encounters Jesus. His life is transformed. We're going to get to that story a little bit later. Um, but in chapter 3 of, of, our, uh, of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 23, we read that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And we've been kind of using this shorthand to describe what Jesus was up to. We've said that Jesus was both showing and telling the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a phrase that we hear repeatedly in the gospel of Matthew. In the other gospels, it's the kingdom of God, kind of used interchangeably. But we've been hearing this language of the kingdom of heaven repeatedly. We're going to hear it even more as we proceed in Matthew. And Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, so we said that Jesus has been showing the gospel and telling the gospel. Showing the gospel by healing people and liberating the spiritually oppressed. And so we, we see that within this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, uh, there is res- restoration, there is healing, there is liberation. This is, these are the, some of the themes of the kingdom, some of the expectations of what life within this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming will be like. But the, 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 the verse also tells us that Jesus has been uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And it's not until we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, that we begin to learn what this gospel actually was. What did Jesus have in mind when he said that this, this kingdom message was actually good news? Why was it good news? What about it was intrinsically Good. And so we've, we've seen a few things in the Sermon on the Fount. We've, we started off with the, what was the first thing we looked at? Anybody? But, 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 the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. You just gotta keep, you just gotta talk back to me. It makes me feel better, you know? Like I'm not just talking to a wall. So the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, which, do you remember what that, Beatitudes was a Latin word for what? Anybody? Blessing. 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 Um, and so basically Jesus, um, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the blessed life is available now. The blessed life is available to everyone now. And he goes through this list of people, people who are down and out, people who are doing okay, people who have been oppressed. And Jesus says that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, the blessed life is available to you now. We describe the blessed life as the kind of life which other people wish to share in. You remember that? 
So we, so we said it's kind of a hard word to translate from the Greek. Some people would say the fortunate life, the lucky life, the happy life. We don't have a good translation. But basically, what Jesus has in mind when he says the blessed life is available to everyone now is it's the kind of life that other people would wish to share in, would look at and say, ah, ah, that's, that's appealing to me, right? So Jesus comes announcing, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is near, and he starts off by saying, because the Messiah has come, the kingdom has come, and so the blessed life is available to everyone, to everyone. This was a radical message because it meant that the blessed life was not bound by gender, by ethnicity, by race, by where you were born. The blessed life, Jesus said, no, 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 it's available to everyone. Uh, and then we move forward, and, and Pastor Michael preached about salt and light, and we learned that the, the life within this kingdom of heaven, this gospel kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming, is one that those who live within this kingdom intrinsically, by the way they live, point people to God. Uh, and, the, and the images, the metaphor that Jesus uses here is both salt and light. That, 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 that the, the, those living within the kingdom will, will automatically bring flavor, spice, that will stand out. And, and, and in the same way, the, those living within the kingdom will be, a, remember, a city on a hill that can't be covered. Just by its nature, by the way people live within this kingdom, the world will look and say, oh, 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 something's going on there. And then the week following, um, we talked about righteousness. And we talked about the righteousness of the Pharisees. You remember this? The righteousness of the Pharisees, Jesus says, is, is the kind of um, the kind of righteousness that comes when we try to work really hard to earn, to earn God's favor. It's the idea that if I do the right things and keep the right religious rules and traditions, that God will look favorably on me. It's frankly a lot of work um, and, 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 and impossible to perfectly do. And Jesus is talking to religious leaders who are used to keeping these traditions perfectly. So that when Jesus' disciples don't, I mean literally, don't wash their hands in just the right way. This is, this is a big deal. Because this is not pursuing the righteousness of the Pharisees. And Jesus, do you remember what he says? He says, unless your righteousness, remember the word, surpasses. Remember that? Surpasses the righteousness of that of the Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's my son back there, throwing some stuff around. That's his way of saying amen, dad. So just, yeah. <laughs> Um, unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus have in mind? Clearly, it can't be actually doing more than the Pharisees. Literally impossible. Jesus has in mind an entirely different kind of righteousness. You remember this? We looked ahead into the Gospel of Matthew to see what does Jesus mean by this. And he has in mind a righteousness that comes not from what we do, but from what is done to us. We said that righteous, a righteous life, a right life begins by an inner transformation, by, by the, the, the core of who we are being turned upside down, by God doing the work that only God can do on our hearts and in our lives so that the way we live, the decisions that we make, the way that we respond to our enemies, the way that we respond to difficult relationships, the way we, we respond when we want to take revenge, comes out of a place of transformation. Are you remembering this? So Jesus is talking about the gospel of the kingdom, and it's good news. It's good news because this is a, this is a new kind of life for people. 
This is a life not of expectation of what you must do in order for God to look at you rightly. This is, this is, a, this is life as gift. This is life as mercy. This is life of, uh, uh, as God wanting to, to utterly and completely transform our lives so that we can grow up into the people we were made to be. Last week, Pastor Michael uh, preached to us about some of the spiritual disciplines that I already mentioned. Giving, prayer, fasting. Um, my, my wife and I, we have this very small little uh, garden, a vegetable garden plot in our backyard. I've mentioned that before. And I was thinking about the spiritual disciplines this week because I was thinking about you know, fasting. And uh, we, we planted these tomato plants. Has anybody ever grown tomato plants? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah, okay. See, city people, we, you know, we can still grow stuff. Um, and, and, we, and we got them there like this, right? And now, literally, some of them are taller than I am. Some of them are, are, are taller than I am. It took, like, about two months, maybe. But when we first put them in the ground, we put one of those tomato cages around them. Have you seen these things? They're just like these, I don't know, cages. <laughs> uh, can't be more descriptive. And the tomato now has grown up inside of that cage. And it's now taller than I am. If that cage wasn't there, do you know what that tomato plant would look like? I mean, it would be flat, right? Because it's got all this fruit on it now. It's got all these tomatoes that are growing on it now. And, and I've, I've seen this. I've, I mean, I, like I'm not an expert gardener, so I've made this mistake before, you know? You just put them in the ground, put water on them, and, well, you know, they're just flat. And then the fruit rots because it's on the ground. And the tomato plant is made to grow up, right? It's made to get big. It's made to get tall. It's made to bear a lot of fruit. But it needs this structure, this scaffolding, this tomato cage. This, these are the spiritual disciplines. The, 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 the cage doesn't make the tomato plant a tomato plant. The cage doesn't even make the tomato plant able to bear good fruit. The, the cage just points the plant in the right direction. Is that right? So when we fast, when we pray, when we give, we're not earning God's favor, God's righteousness. No, no, no. We're choosing structures, choosing habits, choosing disciplines that point us in the way that we're already made to go within this new kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed. Are you with me? Okay, good. So think about fasting as a tomato cage. Tomato cage spiritual disciplines. Jesus is coming, and and I hope that we're seeing this now. Jesus is not proclaiming a new religion. Jesus is not coming and saying, let me give you a a handy list of spiritual rules that are going to make your life better. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom is that in Christ, everything has changed. That because Jesus has come, the kingdom has come. Because the kingdom has come, we're invited into this kingdom that will change everything. Uh, this may sound odd to some of you who, who maybe who aren't Christians or who are kind of new to Christianity, but some of us grew up in, in churches that talked about um, uh, conversion or becoming a Christian by saying, you invite Jesus into your heart. Anybody? Anybody hear that? Come on. Loud and proud. Right? Not just me. You invite Jesus, which is a, which is a nice image, a nice metaphor. There's nothing intrinsically wrong about it, but, but, but. It has this very personal, very private sound to it, doesn't it? I'm going to allow Jesus to come into this little piece of me. I'll keep, I'm going to keep Jesus right here. We're safe. And, and then over time, we find out that, oh, I need some help in this area of my life. I'm butchering my relationship. So Jesus, come on over here with me too. 
Oh, and my finances are a disaster. So Jesus, can you help? Right? Anybody? Are you tracking with me? What does Jesus do here? Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God has come because the Messiah of God has come. And so we now are invited to live within the rule and the reign of God's kingdom. There's no compartmentalizing. We're invited to take a step into this kingdom. We don't just get to stick our arm into the kingdom or our foot or our head. We're not inviting Jesus to come to us. Jesus is inviting us to step into his kingdom. So there's no compartmentalizing. There's no holding back. There's no keeping this little thing just for me. Are you with me? And so when we look today at our passage, when we look today at our passage, we're going to stop. Because Jesus, I think, kind of pauses here. He's been proclaiming this entirely new way of life, this entirely new kingdom of heaven where, where, where life has been flipped upside down. And he, and he stops and he says, but wait, 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 wait. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't get so excited about what I'm saying. Don't think that you can totally understand what I'm saying. Don't miss this. You'll see here in just a second what I mean. Let's uh, read our passage, Matthew chapter 6. Verses 19 through 34. Get your Bible open if you have a Bible. If you have a Bible, at least have it open. You might want to like mark it up or something. You're allowed to do that. You know that, right? Everybody know that? Like, look at my Bible. This thing is a disaster. But that's good, right? Okay. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up, this is Jesus talking, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Uh, if you don't know, Solomon was an Old Testament king, very wealthy, lots of nice clothes, apparently. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray before we proceed any farther. And now, Lord, we pray that as we look at uh, your scriptures this morning, that you would... Um, and especially today, God, I pray that you would not um, allow us to be content with more knowledge, um, but, that, but that rather you, you would be doing something inside of us 
And God, as we encounter today the truth that your kingdom is held together not by how much we know, but by how much we trust you. Lord, I pray that you would be increasing our trust, increasing our faith, increasing our dependence on you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks. Um, okay, so let's, what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk a little bit verse by verse through this. We're going to start with this first section, verses 19 through 24, and then we'll move on from there. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where they can be destroyed. Now, Jesus is talking to people, first century folks, um, who didn't have access to banks, right? There was not a Chase Bank down the street. There was not an ATM. And so any possessions that they had, any wealth that they had, was going to be kept in the form of currency or a valued possession. That's just how, that's how it worked. And where would they keep that? In their home. Again, not a lot of options. And so when Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, rust can destroy, where someone can steal them, everybody's like, yep, been there. <laughs> yep, I thought it was safe, and then, ah, the rats got to it. Really. Or, ah, somebody stole it. So everybody's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly where you don't store up treasures on earth. Instead, 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 store up treasures in heaven. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the things for us um, that, that we would, if Jesus were talking to us, how would he talk to us about this? And we, most of you probably are not like hiding coins under your mattress at night, I'm guessing. Most of you have a bank account, right? So Jesus would talk differently to us, I would think. What would he say? Don't store up treasures on earth. What, what is he getting at here? Where's your security? Where's your identity? Well, what are the things that define you, that clearly show what you value most? So, so for so the folks in the, in, in the audience in that day, yeah, it's the stuff that we keep at home. We're, we're poor for the most part. It's the little that we've scrounged together that we're counting on if anything goes wrong. What about us? What is, what is it for us? What is it for you? What is, what's the default for you? If things go wrong, at least I have that. If she leaves, at least I have this. What is it for you? What's the default just in, in your mind that you just revert to quickly? That's it. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Treasures on earth. Treasures on earth. Jesus says, don't, don't store up treasures on earth because it's, uh, it's fragile. It's It's temporary. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does that mean? What does treasures in heaven mean? Sounds like some of this weird kind of esoteric, spiritual, intangible thing. Treasures in heaven. Let's think about what Jesus has been saying this whole time. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is where? Here. Not out there, not over there, not coming what? The kingdom of heaven is near. So Jesus doesn't seem to have in mind some weird, disconnected spiritual concept about doing good things that God can see and those being our treasures. No, because Jesus has been talking about heaven as if it has come near in Jesus. So it, it's present, storing up treasures in heaven. This is something Jesus is talking about happening now, here. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This sounds a lot like what we talked about a few weeks ago. The righteousness of God transforming our hearts. 
from the inside out. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, is where your heart will be. A transformed heart is going to value what? The things that God values. If Jesus is right, if Jesus is right that this new righteousness that he has been proclaiming is not one that we do or one that we earn, but one that transforms our hearts, then a transformed heart, a heart that's encountered God, has been transformed by God, is going to be one that values the things of God. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So watch how this works in the next couple of verses. The eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says. And then the next one, no one can serve two masters. These, these are just not helpful for us today, can I say? Like, is that, do these make any sense to you? They don't really make any sense to me, just so you know. I, Jesus would talk to us in a very different way today, okay? Because what he's doing is he's, he's, he's using language, he's metaphor, uh, shared understanding that made a ton of sense to everybody in the crowd. But you and I are like, what? The eye is the lamp of the body. If the light is dark, you know, that makes no sense to us. Here's what Jesus is getting at. With, with, with the idea of the, of the light being the lamp of the body, this is, this is a way of, of, of Jesus talking about a person's single-minded focus. Okay? This is the way that folks in, in, in Jesus' audience would have talked about a single-minded devotion towards something. Right? So Jesus says, pay attention to what you are devoted to. Two to what you're looking at. This is, this is language of a, of a passionate, single-minded devotion. No one can serve two masters. Now, Jesus is just pointing out the obvious. If you're a servant to somebody, you can't be a servant to somebody else as well. It's just not possible. Again, not language Jesus would choose to use in our day, but in that day, everybody's like, yep, yep, yep. I know exactly. Of course, it's impossible. You can only be a servant to one. And so, and so Jesus says, so you could be a servant to God, or the God of money, for example. One or the other, but not both. Not both. So Jesus here is getting at our single-minded devotion, our single-minded devotion, and, and, we have one, another little amen from the back there from Elliot. That's good. Somebody's giving me something. That's good. Single-minded devotion, single-minded devotion, and, and, a heart that is completely given over to God. Not attempting to serve more than one Lord. No, no, no. Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And here he, 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 he makes it a little bit more explicit, this invitation, this invitation to treasure the things of God above everything else. If we follow the logic through the sermon, we could say that a, a heart that's been transformed by God is going to treasure the things of God. A heart transformed by God's righteousness is going to be single-minded in its passionate pursuit of the things of God. It's going to value the things of God above everything else. So, so can we evaluate ourselves? Can I give you two questions if you're taking notes? See if you're willing to ask these two questions this week. First, what do I value most highly? This is the single-minded devotion question, I think. What do I value most highly? What is most important to me? And, and if that's too theoretical for you, 
Just like look, look at your calendar for the past three months. Like if you have it on your phone or you, you know, you're old school and you're keeping a day timer, look and see what's on your calendar. I think that'll give you a hint what you value most. Or, or more personal, your checkbook ledger. I hope you have a checkbook ledger or some form of it. You need to know where you're spending your money. That's a whole other sermon series, okay? But that's a good thing. Where do I spend my money? Where do I spend my time? What do I value most? We're talking about the kingdom of heaven and God's invitation, uh, Jesus' invitation to passionately pursue the things of God. We need to evaluate. What do I value the most? What do I value the most? And then second question. Is my loyalty undivided? What do I value the most? Second question, is my loyalty undivided? This is what Jesus is getting at with the two masters. It's impossible. It's one or the other. You you might think that you're serving multiple. You might think that you're making multiple masters happy, multiple lords, multiple idols happy. Mm -mm. Life within the kingdom of heaven, a heart that's been transformed by God's righteousness will be undivided in its loyalty to God. So if that, again, if that's a little too theoretical, how about this question? How about this question? What's your decision-making process like? When you are faced with a massive decision, should I marry that person? Should I move? Is this job a good fit? Should I go back to school? When you're faced with a significant life decision, how do you make that decision? Because I think you can catch a glimpse of your loyalties when you're faced with a major decision. How do I prioritize things? What becomes evident as being most important in my life to me? Are you with me? Jesus is inviting us into this unbelievably beautiful life within the kingdom of heaven. But now he says, look, look, look. If your heart is to be transformed by God, your life will be one of single-minded, passionate devotion to the way of God. And so we ask ourselves, is it happening? Before we move on to the, the next little section here, um, let me just acknowledge that there's, there's a risk of accepting Jesus' invitation into this passionate pursuit of the things of God. Uh, And and I think sometimes churches and pastors and Christians, we don't do a good job of this. We're just like, yeah, come, it's great. Follow Jesus, everything will be wonderful. It's not true. Sometimes it'll be hard. And so so we've talked in the past few weeks about ways that you and I choose to, to live our lives, things that kind of values that we hold, ways that we look at the world. Remember we talked about sort of the if-then way of understanding our world. And and we may hear Jesus' call to this new kingdom. We may be intrigued by it. It may sound good to us. We may even be aware that the way that we're currently living is broken, is tiresome, is burdensome. We just can't. It's too much. We keep faith, right? So, But even then, at least we know what to expect in our current way of life, right? Even if it's broken, even if we know it's broken, at least we know how it works, what to expect. 
So there's a risk, there's a risk inherent to Jesus' invitation because he's inviting you and I to participate in something that most of us have no experience with. Life within the kingdom of God is so radically sort of upside down from what you and I have been schooled in that it's a risk. Is the blessed life really available to everyone? As That does not match up with what I've experienced. Is the righteousness of God really not something I have to work really hard for and earn and do my best for, but is actually something that God wants to do to me? No, no, no. That's not. Do you you hear what I'm saying? There's a risk inherent in Jesus' invitation, and let's not ignore it, okay? Let's not pretend like it's just, here it is, take it, everything be great. No, 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 no. Because most of us have not experienced this kind of life. This is why Jesus spends so much time on the kingdom of heaven. Because it's so different than what people have experienced, than what you and I have experienced. Let me come at it again. Let me come at it from this way. What we're going to find in a few chapters, Jesus is going to start telling stories, parables about it. He's like, I told you what it's like. I've shown you what it's like. Now let me get creative and tell you some stories about what it's like. I'm going to come at this every way possible. Why? Because this is such a different kind of life than any of us have experienced. There's a risk inherent into saying yes to accepting this invitation. So here it is. Understanding Jesus. Understanding Jesus' kingdom is not enough. Some of you have, have come up to me or Pastor Michael, even Michelle Dodson after we've preached. He said, you know what I like about our church is that we spend a lot of time in the Bible Right? We ch- we're challenged with the sermons, like intellectually, we, we think about things hard. Which, yeah, that's good, right? But can I tell you that it's not enough? Can I tell you that understanding Jesus is not enough? Can I tell you that liking Jesus is not enough? Let me push it a little bit more. Can I tell you that believing in Jesus is not enough? Okay, nobody walked out. Okay, that's good. Watch what Jesus does now. Jesus is about to get really personal. He's about to show us, I think, what's going to keep us within the center of this kingdom that he has been proclaiming. And it has very little to do with how smart we are, how much we understand, or even necessarily believing all the right things. Jesus starts, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Remember again who Jesus is talking to here. These are peasants for the most part. These are poor folk. Eating, drinking, clothing, these aren't object lessons. These are real concerns. No, really, where, what, where are we going to eat tomorrow? Really, how are we going to clothe our children next year? Real concerns. For us, maybe not. Some of us, maybe that's a legitimate concern. For others of us, our worries are different, right? For others, there are these things that, ah, when it comes up, when we see that person, when we're reminded of that event, when we know that that thing's coming, ah, that thing in you. You know what I'm talking about? It's a feeling. 
All of a sudden, it's just there in, the, in your stomach, right? Mm, worry. I love Jesus. Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. He doesn't just say, don't worry. He doesn't just say, uh, trust God. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus gives very practical examples that would cause people to feel what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't just about interesting theology. Jesus is going to... No, no, this is where the rubber meets the road. Food, drink, clothing. Ah, I'm there. I feel it. What is it for you? It needs to be present. Can it be present for you now? I know we like to avoid that. (laughs) Whatever that thing, those things are for you, but bring it. Bring it right now. Let it sit there. Because that's what Jesus is addressing. This is not an esoteric theological lesson. Everybody should trust God and be happy. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Where is the point of disconnect for you? Where is it that when that thing, when that person, that memory shows back up, all of a sudden you move from, yeah, I'm trusting God, to uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm hanging on to this sucker for myself. You know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you what it is for me lately. Uh, it was not like in my 10-year plan to be uh, the white pastor of a church in a predominantly black neighborhood. Can I just tell you that? Not part of my 10-year plan. Not because that's not a good thing, but just because, who might think that that's a good idea? So as our church got ready to start this, plant this new church, you know, I was like, yeah, I'll help out. I'll do behind-the-scenes stuff. I'll get Candace to come up on a Sunday morning and pray. I'll get small groups together. Absolutely. Great. I can do that. White guy, I can do that. Behind the scenes stuff. And then God's going to miraculously bring this perfect black pastor for new community, Bronzeville. And that didn't happen. As you can see, that didn't happen. And so at some point, the leaders of our church say, David, David, um, Go ahead. And can I tell you that it's in that moment that I realize I like Jesus. I, I think I understand Jesus. I, I believe in Jesus. But right now, mm-mm, I do not trust. It's not food or drink for me. It's not clothing. I'm, I'm okay that way. It's up. Ah, <laughs> I'm still white. And this is still Bronzeville. I'm blessed. I'm blessed with a spiritual director, a woman who's years older than I am, grew up on the south side, meet with her every month. And she just hear me going like, no, no, really. Wrong person. Wrong person. Do you trust him, David? Do you trust him, David? Do you trust him? Clearly not. (laughs) For me, that's the thing. Ah, In my stomach. In my stomach. I like Jesus. I think I understand a lot about Jesus and his kingdom. I'm all about it. I give my life to it. But in this, in this, in this, no, this is too big. This is too strange. This doesn't make sense to me. Can anybody relate to that? I'll go this far. I can go this far. I can do, but that, 
uh, no, mm, I'll hang on to that. I'll tell you how things work in this area. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Let that, that saying, what's that saying? Not esoteric, theological concept about trusting God. No, right there, right there. There's this great little story that we're going to get to in Matthew chapter 14. Let me just read a few verses of it to you. Jesus sent his disciples on ahead of them. They're out in a boat and a storm comes up. Verse 25, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, which is, is different, right? All right, I think these things are funny. Jesus walking on water, that's odd. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, said Peter, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Because of the world that we live in. Because, because of the way we have been schooled in this world. Because of the, the things that we've been told are right in this world. And the way that we've been told, no, this is just how things are. It will never be enough to just understand Jesus. It will never be enough for us to like Jesus, to believe the right things about Jesus. The way of life in the kingdom that Jesus is describing will always be just outside of our grasp until we trust Jesus. This isn't about this. Do I trust him? At some point, the waves come up. At some point, I'm reminded that I'm a white guy trying to pastor a multi-ethnic church. At some point, that thing for you comes up and you start to sink. This is what Jesus is getting at right now. You want to talk about life within this kingdom? You want to talk about single-minded, passionate pursuit of the things of God? No, let's, let's get real personal. Because it will all fall apart. It will all fall apart if we do not trust the center of that kingdom, Jesus. That's what holds it together. Not your belief, not your right understanding, not your conviction. Trust. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about anything. Verse 26, are you not much more valuable than birds and lilies? Remember where Jesus is, they're out on a hillside. So I think Jesus is just looking around. Well, there goes some birds. Aren't you more valuable than those birds that just flew by? Look at those lilies over there. Doesn't God care about you more than those lilies? Then the grass of the field that is here today and tomorrow is going to be bundled up and used for fuel in somebody's fire. Aren't you more valuable than they? This is, I think, Jesus is nodding all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Let me just pull a couple of pieces here from it. Um, this will be familiar to some of you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. From the very beginning, what Jesus is saying here, from the very beginning, God has said, you're special, people. I didn't create anything else in my image. I created you special. I have a mission for you to care for that which I created. You're unique, Adam, Eve, humanity. You're unique. You're special. This is what Jesus is saying in the sermon. Doesn't God care for you? He cares for that bird. He cares for these lilies. Doesn't, hasn't God always cared more for you? But there is this human story, this pattern that's just, it's, it's, it's written across our hearts. And it begins with Adam and Eve who go, oh, no, we don't trust you, God, actually. Is God really good? Does God really have our best in mind? This is, the, this is the pattern, this is the way that we live our lives, that in God we find one who is completely trustworthy. And we go, I don't know about that. I don't know. I'm going to look for somewhere else to place my trust. Because can I tell you the human instinct is that we need to place our trust somewhere? Am I right? It might be in our spouse, it might be in our job, it might be even in your own personality. I can't trust anybody else, I can trust me. And it's predictable, right? I mean, it's predictable. It, at some point, it's going to come crashing down. I mean, if it hasn't yet, can I just tell you? Can I just spoil it for you? It will. That person that you think is perfect? No, no, no. A job is like, oh, this job was created for me. Ugh. Even your own personality. I, I can take care of myself. I can trust myself. So the human story, the human story, a God who is perfectly trustworthy, we say, no, but we'll place our trust over here. That comes crashing down. Then what? Then what? Many of us, then our instinct is to say, oh, maybe I'll go back to God. But I need to earn it because I walked away. I need to earn it back because I I rebelled. I had a good thing there and I left it, so I need to show God that I deserve it. To be back. This is, this is, you know, remember the parable of the prodigal son? This is the elder brother who stayed around the whole time doing everything right, keeping all the rules, earning, thinking in many ways that he was earning his father's approval. This is the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus referred to before. What I do allows God to love me, to care for me, to accept me. This is, can I tell you, this is, this is what is passed for Christianity for many of us. Yeah, God will take me back once I fill in the blank. Get my stuff together, do that thing, stop doing that thing. Am I right? So we doubt God's trustworthiness. We place our trust elsewhere. And when that comes falling down, we come back to God looking to earn, earn His favor. But here's the problem. The issue has never been whether God can trust you. Your attempt to come back to earn God's favor has never been the issue. Because God has never been interested in whether He can trust you. He can't. 
You're shocked, I know. The issue has never been, not, not, not from the very beginning, has never been, can God trust me? The issue has always been, will I trust God? Always has been the question from the very beginning. The blessed life is available not for those who prove themselves to God, but to everyone who will trust God. That's it. Restored relationship with God, righteous relationship with God is not for those who have, who have earned it, who have done the right things to earn that righteousness. It's for those who've trusted that God wants to do a transformational work on us. And can I say that, that I believe that Jesus' very presence on that hill on that day was maybe the greatest sign to those people of God's trustworthiness. Can I trust Him? No, really, can I? Son of God, (laughs) sitting in the dirt, pointing at the birds, doesn't God love you more? This is Jesus. I was there when He made Him. He loves you more. The lilies of the... He loves you more. You've turned, you've run, you've forgotten God, you've placed your trust elsewhere. (laughs) Son of God, present. Is there a greater sign of God's trustworthiness than the fact that he has never, ever given up on you? That he has always been present when you have turned back to him. Is he trustworthy? Is there a greater sign than the fact that it was Jesus in that moment speaking these words, the Son of God sent from heaven to pursue us. Is he trustworthy? Verse 31, Jesus says, So, so, don't worry. So, don't worry. It's not a flippant command. Again, the absence of worry, the absence of worry is a sign of our trust in God. Once Jesus has tapped into that greatest source of worry, that place that we withhold ourselves from him, God, I'll go that far, but no farther. God, I'll trust you that much, but no more. Once Jesus has tapped into that, brought that to the surface, and then brought God's trustworthiness alongside of it, Jesus said, so, so look, look, don't worry. He's trustworthy. Don't worry. He says the pagans run after these things, and you shouldn't be like that. The pagans, what is that? This is just Jesus' shorthand of saying those who are living outside of the kingdom of heaven. That's all. Not a derogatory term as we would use it, maybe. No, it's just those outside of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, look, it makes sense. Outside of the kingdom of heaven, it makes sense to be worried. Of course it does. It makes sense to pursue things with worry and insecurity. But Jesus says, no, not for you. Not for you. Are church folks uh, uh, typically worrisome people? Be honest. (laughs) Why is that, John? Why is that? So backwards. 
people who confess Jesus, people who, who, who are pursuing the way of Jesus, people whose hearts are being transformed by Jesus ought to be the least worried people in the world. Those least marked by fear. Not oblivious, not naive. No, no, no. No, no. Aware? Absolutely. But least marked by fear, by worry. There's a story in, in, in Acts, Acts chapter 16, where the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas have been traveling, preaching the gospel there in Philippi. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They've been flogged. And now they're in jail. They're in chains. Uh, and this is what the verse says. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Can I tell you that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible? Because it makes absolutely no sense outside the kingdom of heaven. They've been arrested. Their freedom's taken from them. They're chained up. They've been flogged. They don't know what's happening tomorrow. And they're praying and they're singing hymns. Makes no sense outside the kingdom of heaven. Unless these men's hearts have been transformed by God so that their trust in God is so deep, is so pervasive, that nothing is outside. Nothing that happens to them is outside the realm of God's kingdom. No, God's present here. God's in control here. God hasn't changed. I love that. I'm reading this. I was telling Curtis about this biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I'm reading right now. I'm making progress, Curtis. I'm not done with it yet, but I'm making progress. It's like 500 pages, you know, so... I just read this part where uh, Bonhoeffer, he's this German theologian leading up to World War II, and uh, he knows that if he stays in Germany, he's likely to be arrested and, um, and, and, and likely executed for his work against the Nazis and Hitler. And so some friends of his in America, they arranged for him to come to New York to teach at a seminary, and he, he, he escapes just by the skin of his teeth. Um, he stays for 26 days. And, and then he returns. And it literally just confuses everybody. All of the people who worked so hard to get him there, just, they, they, like, you're reading the letters in this biography, and they're just, they're, they're utterly dumbfounded. Why are you leaving? We got you here so that you wouldn't be sent to a concentration camp. Why are you leaving? And you read Bonhoeffer's journals, and he's just in turmoil. He cannot be away from his, what he calls his brethren. From, his, from, from the church in Germany, from the struggle, even though he knows the cost. And so what happens? He goes back to Germany, and it, it's like a marked difference. He goes from agony, from turmoil, to utter peace. To utter peace. He knows he's likely to be arrested, and he is. He knows that he'll probably be executed, and he is. And the, just in the days before Germany's defeat, he's killed in prison. Complete peace. You read the writings from, from his time in prison, his journals, his letters. Center of God's will. Exactly where God wants me to be. How do you explain that? How does that make any sense outside of the kingdom of heaven? I don't know. Except that, God, that Bonhoeffer, like Paul and Silas, so trusted God's provision in God's kingdom that he could go wherever God wanted him to. That the sermon ends, the sermon ends, and Jesus says, Look, don't, don't worry about tomorrow. 
because today's got enough trouble as it is. Doesn't that sound something like your grandmother would say to you? <laughs> like that's Jesus as like your grandma's wisdom or something, you know? Don't worry about tomorrow. There's enough trouble for today. And Jesus isn't saying, trust God and everything's going to be great. Can I tell you how, good, how, how much good news that is? That's, so, that's such good news to me because that, th- th- there are people, there are Christians that have this idea that if something bad happens to them, it's because they're not trusting God enough. Oh, what a weighty, what a heavy way to live. It's all on you. You've got to trust enough. You've got to be faithful enough. You've got to be good enough. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, there'll be trouble. There'll be trouble. Don't worry about it, though. Why? Because God is here, is trustworthy. I love verse 33. It's a verse that I would love our church to memorize. But seek first, Jesus says, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus started the passage by inviting us into a passionate pursuit of the things of God. And it's this life of trust, of complete trust, that allows us to be abandoned to this kind of life. God is good. God is present. I can trust Him. I can passionately pursue the things of God without looking back. As we grow in our trust of God, you and I will grow in our ability to passionately pursue God's kingdom. For some of you, you wonder, why am I hesitant? Why do I hold back? Why am I reserved? Here's this thing in front of me, this opportunity in front. Why could it be trust? Might you begin praying about trust? Might you begin asking God, help me to trust you more? The goal of your life, the goal of my life is not to avoid worry. It's not to avoid pain. Neither is the goal to prove ourselves trustworthy to God. You're not. I'm not. And that's not the point. The goal, the goal, the goal. The treasure in heaven is trust. Do you trust Him, church? Do you trust Him? The mission that God has called us to be about, the beautiful, free life within the kingdom of heaven that we have been invited into is contingent just on Do I trust him? That's it. Am I growing in my trust of him? Church, this is the God. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Do you trust him? This is the God who created humanity in his own image. Do you trust him? This is the God who has never, ever, ever, ever given up on you. Do you trust him? This is the God who led the Israelites out of slavery. Do you trust him? This is the God who was with Daniel in the lion's den. You remember that story? Do you trust him? This is the God who protected Esther when she went before the king could have been killed, but sustained her and sustained her people. Do you trust him? 
Church, this is the God who sent his only son to be born into a family of poor and oppressed people. Do you trust him? This is the God who went to the cross to take your sin, my sin, our rebellion, our pathetic attempts to prove our righteousness. Put it to death. Do you trust him? This is, this is the God, this is the God who literally could not be held by the grave. Who could not be held by the grave. Who resurrected in triumph over death, over sin, and over evil. Do you trust Him? That, I mean, that's it. Not that you believe all the right stuff. Not that you understand everything that Jesus is about. Not that you I get every little piece of theology about this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is proclaiming. Not have I gotten all my stuff together. Not am I acceptable to God. Do you trust him? Zach, go ahead and come on up here if you can. The invitation this morning is just to trust. We're going to receive uh, communion here. The Lord's Supper in just a minute. And for some of us, for some of us, when we come forward and we, we break the bread, this will be a chance for us to, frankly, just affirm, I trust him. He's been good. He's never let me down. He is enough. He has always been enough. I trust him. For others of us, probably me, it's, God, I want to trust you more. I'm, a, I'm becoming aware that I trust you this much. I, God, I want to trust you more. And maybe for some of us it's, no, I don't. <laughs> Not yet. I can't, I can't say that I trust him yet. Okay, that's okay. We come forward this morning... Um, We'll have some folks holding the bread and the cup and uh, you're just invited to take a piece of bread and to rip it off and to dip it in the cup. Take a big piece of bread. Take a big piece of bread. Because he, he's enough. Jesus says, Jesus says, pray for your daily bread. Some of us have been fasting the past 24 hours and we're reminded in this moment, we're reminded in this moment that it is God alone who sustains us. It's God alone who is worthy of our trust. As the, as the Apostle Paul puts it, it is God alone who holds all things together. So what we'll do is Zach will start playing here and um, we're going to uh, say a couple of, of words and prayers together before we receive communion. And, and then when you're ready... Um, you'll, you'll just come and um, without pressure um, without expectation uh, but you'll just you'll come and, um, and be reminded that God is a trustworthy God that God had you in mind from the beginning of time that the, that the, the things in your life that are worrisome to you are not a surprise to him are not too big for him. Uh, and so when you come and you, and you receive the Lord's Supper, when you 
uh, take a piece of bread and you rip it off and you dip it in the cup, be reminded that uh, this, is, this is our sustenance for life. This is what holds us together. This is what holds the universe together. The very presence of Christ. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. Many will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. This is the Lord's table. Our Savior invites those who trust Him to share the feast He has prepared. According to Luke, when our risen Lord was at a table with His disciples, He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. Daniel, can you put this up? Say this with me. Pray this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you, not word and deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. Let's pray. We do not presume, Lord, to come to this your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, that we may evermore dwell in Him and He in us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they were delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. This is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There will be a couple of folks up front if you'd like to be prayed for as you come up to receive communion uh, or afterwards, just kind of standing off to the sides here. Please uh, take advantage of, of them if you'd like to be prayed for. Some of you, you know what? Some of you need to just come to one of these folks and just say, can you pray that I will trust him more? Allow somebody to pray that for you today. Allow someone to, to ask God on your behalf for a little bit more trust today. When you're ready, I invite you to come, take a big piece of bread, dip it in the cup, bring it back to your chair, and celebrate God's trustworthiness in your life. We'll sing during this time. Come when you're ready.
Loving God, you graciously feed us who have received these holy mysteries with the bread of life and the cup of eternal salvation. May we who have received this sacrament be strengthened in your service. We we who have sung your praises tell of your glory and truth. We who have seen the greatness of your love see you face to face in your kingdom. For you have made us your own people by the death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord, and by the life-giving power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming today. We're super thankful that you were here with us to be reminded of our God's trustworthiness. But now hear these words from the book of Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God, now send us out as people learning to trust you more. People learning what life within the kingdom of heaven looks like. People called to a single-minded, passionate pursuit of the things of God. And ultimately, people who are loved by you, who can trust that you will never leave, never forsake, and never forget us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you next week.